Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today's episode is about the 2015 film My King. It's a French film. It's directed by Mai Wen. It's about a woman reconstructing her body and her life in the wake of a toxic relationship with an emotionally abusive man. It features a raw and award-winning performance by Emmanuel Berko. She plays the woman, and the man is played by Vincent Cassel. I think this is an important film about misogyny, psychological abuse, and a woman finding a way to free herself from a terrible relationship. I loved it immediately when I saw it a few years ago, and I've been wanting to talk about it for a while. I hope you'll stick around and listen to my full episode and everything that I have to say about it. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the work I'm doing on a monthly basis, and you can access rewards and extras like merchandise, extra episodes, and so much more. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Christopher, Kelsey, Aaron, Tyler, Max, Juan, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for your support. If financial support isn't an option, consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. Please give me five stars. You can tell your friends and followers about the podcast, or you can engage with me in a positive way on social media. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Her Head in Films, and you can see links to all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So before I get into my full analysis of my king, first I'm going to talk a bit about something that happened to me recently and how Andre Tarkovsky's 1979 film Stalker helped me through it. So I really want to talk about the emotional power of cinema and how it can really save us in really dark and difficult times. And then I'll talk all about my king. again and again about the emotional power of cinema. It's really what this podcast is dedicated to, is to excavating my own personal relationship to the different films that I watch. Anybody can talk about these films, and everybody has talked about a lot of the films that I discuss, but I like to think that what I bring to this podcast And what I bring to my engagement with cinema is my own subjectivity and the way that I relate to a work of art. In doing that, I hope that I raise questions for you, the listener, for you to think about how a film affects you and changes you and the life that it takes on inside of your own mind. 
I know that some people may dislike this podcast for that reason, that it's so much about my life. It's so much about my own experiences and who cares? Who am I? I'm just this random person that none of you know, um, talking into a microphone and who am I? You know, I often think that. I often think like, who am I to talk about Ingmar Bergman films, to talk about Christoph Kishlovsky and Agnes Varda? Like, who am I? I didn't go to college and study cinema. I don't have any kind of special knowledge. I'm not a historian. I'm just an average everyday person talking about these films. But I hope that some of you connect to the stories that I tell about my own life and about my experience with these films. But I hope that it doesn't stop there. I hope that you're not just like a passive listener and just thinking, oh, well, that's her experience with the film. I hope that it inspires you, if you've already seen the film, to maybe think deeper about your own relationship to the film. Or if you haven't seen one that I'm talking about, that it inspires you to seek that film out and have your own experience with it. Because I think that that's what can get lost in today's world, where it's all about social media and reviews online and, you know, just the way film culture is. You know, everybody has an opinion. There's so many people online with opinions about films. And I think that we can get inundated and overwhelmed sometimes that, oh, well, here are the film critics and here's what they think. And here are all these random people on Twitter and Facebook and here's what they think about a film. But I think at the end of the day, what matters is what does the film mean to you? What do you think about it? That's what matters. That's what is important. And to form your own thoughts, to form your own experience with that work of art, with that piece of cinema, I think that's really important. And I hope that I encourage you to do that. I'm not the be all end all. I'm not, you know, I'm not an authority and I would never want to be. I always want you, the listener, to to think about your own experience with a film. I hope that I inspire you to do that. I really do. But I talk a lot about the emotional power of cinema because that's the only way that I can talk about it. I really cannot discuss cinema in any other way because I think when you've had a life like I have with a lot of pain and a lot of tragedy and trauma, I think that life itself becomes an ordeal at times. Life itself becomes profoundly painful and senseless and meaningless. I've lost a lot of people in my life, in particular the death of my father in 2006 when I was 16 years old. And I talk about it constantly because I think about it constantly and it is part of my life in every conceivable way. And that pain can be so overpowering that there's not a lot of room for anything else. And so art for me, cinema, literature, music, paintings, they are an escape for me. They are a comfort. They may not be that for everybody, but that's what they are. I'm not using this podcast to create a career in film. I don't have access to that. I don't have any ulterior motive. You know, I'm not a brand. I'm not promoting anything. This is not going to lead to anything in my life. My life is very ordinary and very hard at times. And this is just an outlet for me to try to deal with some of that pain and to talk about it in a way that it feels safe for me. So I am an emotional person. 
everything is personal and emotional for me because of my own experiences. You know, I don't take art lightly. I don't take films lightly. They hit me on an emotional level. And I wanted to share an example with you. Uh, Recently, my mom's husband was in the hospital. It's been really stressful dealing with it. I really crumble at times like this when things like this are happening for a lot of reasons mainly because of my father's death and it when I have to go to hospitals when I have to deal with seeing people have health issues and things like that it really triggers me it it reminds me of seeing my own father in the hospital it reminds me of his death it reminds me of uh, all of that so it, it brings up a, a life of trauma, really. And I had to go through that recently. And I've moved a lot lately. So where I live now, I don't have any family and I don't have any friends. So I live with my mom and her husband, who she's with. That's really the only people that I have in the world. So I'm very isolated. I'm very alone, you know, going through this experience because I really just don't trust people anymore. I don't trust people online. And I have trouble connecting with people in the real world. (laughs) That's a big problem that I have. And I'm a very lonely person as a result. So my mom's husband was in the hospital and it's just been really stressful and scary. He's okay. He's going to be okay. But it was hard. He's home now. He's not in the hospital anymore. But it's like, I didn't know what to do as the situation was unfolding. It was incredibly scary. The thing that got me through all of this, you know, the trip to the hospital and trying to be there for my mom, I really, I really didn't break down as much as I usually do because she was so scared and I really had to keep it together and keep her going. So I actually didn't break down as much as I thought that I would. I was actually a lot stronger than I expected to be in this situation. But one of the things that kept me going through all of this was Tarkovsky's film Stalker. I started this film weeks ago. I have this terrible habit of starting films and then not finishing them. So I had watched about 40 minutes. It's a two and a half hour film. It's around two hours, 40 minutes. So when all of this was happening with my mom's husband being in the hospital, I got to thinking about Stalker and how I really wanted to finish it. And so literally the thought of getting home and watching Stalker is what helped me get through this. I'm just going to be honest. And so this is like a real example. When I say that cinema saves me or cinema is salvation or it's life saving, you know, and it keeps me going. I'm not like exaggerating. I'm not, you know, just being cliche or something like that. I'm talking about in real moments of anguish and fear and stress that thinking about a film, thinking about being able to see it, you know, is something that I hold on to and that keeps me going. And that's what Stalker was for me. And so the night he came home from the hospital, my mom's husband, I was just so exhausted because this kind of stress just takes a toll on my body. I already deal with health issues myself on top of my mental health issues. And so, I mean, people just don't realize what I go through and like how my my mind is like hell at times. Like I just feel so trapped in my mind and inside of the fear and the terror that I feel a lot of the time. So that night we got home and I was just so exhausted 
exhausted, but sometimes you're so tired that you can't sleep. Like, you know, you're tired, but you just really can't go to sleep. So I decided that I was going to finish Stalker, and it was really important to me to do that. And so that's what I did. I, I had thought about it, and then I finally got to watch it, and it was just such a gift to me. This film is like, it has left me speechless when I finished it. I just sort of sat in silence for a while. I've been wondering how I'm going to watch another film after this film. Um, For those of you who don't know about Stalker, it's a 1979 film by Andrei Tarkovsky, famous Soviet director. It's about um, like something, we don't know the country, we don't know the time period. It's called a sci-fi film, but I wouldn't say it has a lot of those things in it. But something has happened in, in a particular area. Something has landed or crashed and the area becomes cordoned off and it is called the zone. And there are these people that take other people into the zone and they're called stalkers. So we have the stalker and then we have the writer and we have the professor, these two other men that he's going to lead into the zone because inside of the zone is the room. And if you go into this room, all of your wishes or your deepest desire will come true. So it's basically just this two and a half hour film of just these guys walking through the zone. Um, There's water dripping, uh, there's like grass and uh, ruins, like these buildings that are just completely ruined. And there's this dog and, you know, they say different things throughout the film and talk about things. And it's very philosophical. It's very beautiful. It's slow. It's It's unlike sort of anything I've ever encountered. I've watched Tarkovsky before. I kind of knew what to expect. I've seen Solaris. I've seen Ivan's Childhood. I've seen The Mirror. Personally, The Mirror is my favorite by Tarkovsky. And so Stalker has been at the top of my list to see for a long time. And so for me, I can't say that I understand everything about this film. It's based on a book very loosely, really there's not a lot of connections with the book, but it is, that is where the idea originated. And I can't say that I understand everything about it, you know, but I feel it. And I, there is, I think it's the kind of film that can be engaged with on an intellectual level, but I also feel like there is an emotional dimension to it as well. And that I tapped into that, like, you know, it's, it's not just maybe that the film is emotional, but maybe that I'm emotional too, that as I watched the film, I had gone through something really destabilizing and difficult. And so maybe I projected some of that onto the film. I don't know, but it's, it's a, even though it's like based on a book and all of that, it's pure cinema. It is, it's a story told the only way that cinema can tell it through sound, through images, through slowness and time. The zone is brought to life in a way that I don't think it could be brought to life in a book. Cinema can give us this. You know, this is why this art form is so profound, I think, is that there are people who have used this art form, like Tarkovsky, who who was a genius, absolutely a genius, a master, one of the greatest. I truly believe that because it can evoke these emotions and these feelings and it can give you an experience that you cannot find in any other art form. You cannot find it with a book or with music. It's because it brings all of it together. 
brings in sound and music and the soundscape in this film is profound. I talked in another episode about a documentary that I recently saw or well it's been a few months now called Ruichi Sakamoto Koda. Sakamoto is a um, composer and he talked about Tarkovsky in the documentary and talked about the sounds in Tarkovsky's films especially of water and rain and so with that documentary in my mind I was very conscious of the way that sound was used in the film, how watery the film was, full of uh, the sound of water and wind and footsteps and just like this very rich sonic soundscape that he created with the film. And of course, that's a great example of how a a film can impact your experience of another film that maybe if I had not watched the Ruichi Sakamoto documentary, I would not have been as aware or conscious of the way that Tarkovsky was using sound in Stalker, but I was. I was very alert to it. It's it's an important part of the film. I, I don't even know how to talk about Stalker. I don't think I'd ever do an episode about it. I've thought more about doing an episode on Solaris because it it affected me in an, in an emotional way as well, and maybe I'd have more I'd, I'd be able to say more about that one. Stalker just feels way too enormous. Like, how do you even talk about something like this? And it's just pure cinema in that way that it gives us these images, these sounds, these experiences, these emotions that we can't find anywhere else. It's so immersive and haunting. Like, I'm still thinking about it. I'll probably always think about it. I'll still... I don't know if it can be deciphered. It feels like such an incomprehensible film to me. I mean, I'm going to read more about it and see what other people's interpretations are. I don't know what I think about it. I like, I feel overwhelmed by it. I feel like sort of just like I don't have words and I don't have really the intelligence to talk about such a film, but I do feel it and I have that emotional connection to it. And I probably always will now because of the time at which I watched it and what was going on in my life and also the the beauty that it brought and the comfort that it brought to me. That's an important part of a film's function for me sometimes, depending on what I'm going through in my life. I think everybody will have a different experience of Stalker. They saw it at a different time in their life. For me, it happens when I'm going through something really difficult, and it's just a reminder of what cinema can give to us, that it can give us these these beautiful, um, you know, incomprehensible, magnificent, overwhelming experiences. And how do you put it into words? I, I don't know. I really struggle with it, and Tarkovsky's one of those directors for me where it's like, I don't know if I could ever talk about him or talk about his work and how deeply it moves me. And then for somebody else, it may not have that Im- that effect at all. It's an impenetrable film, but it's also an emotional film, I think, which is weird. It's It's both at the same time. I think it's really intellectually dense, but then I think it's also really emotional. I don't know. The slowness, the stillness of it, the beautiful sounds in it. The imagery. I mean, I think I'll probably always think about the grass in that film. I don't know why. And the water. And there was, when they went into some of the buildings, there was like this, like this light, fluffy material on the walls. I mean, somehow 
he was able just to create an entire universe and to take you into this zone. And then, of course, the sepia-colored parts are very unusual and evocative as well. And I keep thinking about the stalker's daughter, Monkey, and the ending and her. Like, who... What has happened to Monkey? What has happened to her? So he has just, he has suggested so much in this film. He's created this world, this universe, these people, these feelings. And to me, it's still magical. To me, it is still magical. And I want it to always remain magical. And I want it to remain emotional. That's really important to me. And that's what I... That's what I advocate for on this podcast is that emotional relationship to cinema because I just, I think it's so important. I think how we experience these films matters and I don't know if we talk enough about that, you know, about the role that cinema can play in our lives in terms of providing comfort, bringing beauty. I mean, it's a landscape of ruin. And yet it's beautiful. There are sort of ugly things about it. You know, this dingy water and this overgrown grass and these rusted out vehicles and all these ruins. And yet it's absolutely stunning. It's a very haunted landscape, the zone. It's really haunted by absence because nobody lives there. Nobody can live there. And it does bring up issues, I think, of environmental degradation. It comes like a decade before Chernobyl, which is an entire area that people have had to leave. Or if you think recently about Fukushima, you know, and when you think about there are places in the world where people cannot live in them. They are uninhabitable. And really with the with the specter of climate change and global warming and the catastrophic levels that it could get to in the future, the entire earth itself could become uninhabitable for human beings. So I think this one film engages with a lot of issues in that way. There's so much there. It's rich. It's it just leaves me absolutely uh, speechless. It has this ineffable mystery and quality to it that I'll probably never penetrate and never unpeel. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I shouldn't want to unpeel the mystery. I mean, why would you want to destroy the mystery? That's what I am sort of fascinated by with our emotions and our feelings, is that there is something very mysterious about them. And why we connect to certain works of art, but then don't connect to others. And then how, you know, two people can watch a film or two people can read a book and they can get completely different experiences from it. But it comes from each of us being individuals and having such different frame frames of reference, you know, different things that we've been through, different histories, and so we each bring that to any work of art that we consume, be it a book, a song, a film. We bring our own lives to it. We bring our own feelings to it. And I think that's really beautiful. And I hope that, as I said earlier, I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you to think about your own experiences with different films and to own that experience. That it's okay if you feel differently about a film than somebody else, that they're 
reaction doesn't invalidate or negate yours, that they're just different. And it's important to be open to different perspectives, obviously, but I think it's okay for us to own our own feelings and experiences and to say, well, this is what I got out of it. This is how it affected me. And that that's just as valid as what a film critic or an academic or whoever, what they get out of that film. So I just wanted to talk about how Stalker and cinema in general continues to help me through difficult experiences. And I think because of my loneliness and I turn to art even more, I turn to films even more because I can't connect to people. I can't find people to really invest in or to connect to. And so I think I have to do that through art. I think I have to rely on myself and I have to rely on art to help me get through because For so many years, I haven't had people in my life. I haven't had good, reliable people, and I still don't. And so I just have to turn to these other things. I have to turn to books and films, and and that's really what I need. And that's what is going to save me and what has always saved me. This experience, even though it was scary and hard and it reminded me how alone I am, it also reminded me that I have these things right in front of me that have always helped me and have always saved me, and that's films and books and art, and that that is where I need to find comfort and salvation. So it really reinforced that for me as well. I first saw My King in 2016, and it was actually one of my favorite films that I saw that year. It feels like not a lot of people know about this film, but I love spotlighting movies like this that maybe you haven't heard of, and it's sort of a passion of mine to bring you in contact with films that you might not normally watch or you might not engage with. I don't know what drew me to the film exactly. I have a crush on Vincent Cassell, so I think he was part of it. And I think the poster really intrigued me. The poster shows Vincent Cassell and Emmanuel Berko. It shows a close-up of their faces, and they look like they're kissing, but he's really, like, biting her lip. So it's this provocative poster as well. And it was... One of my favorite films that I saw in 2016 for so many reasons, and that's why I've chosen to talk about it on the podcast, is because there's so much in it and there's so much that I want to say. It moved me. I thought it was a powerful film. I also really believe that it's a film about misogyny and emotional abuse. I don't know if we see that in film a lot. I I feel like this is a feminist film in some ways in the way that it looks at a woman's subjectivity and her life and really her struggle to liberate herself from a very toxic and unhealthy relationship. And I felt like a lot of women could probably watch this film and see themselves in it or see their interactions with men, their relationships with men. And that is another reason why I wanted to talk about it. I I'm always drawn to films about women and often by women. My win is 
a director that I don't think a lot of people know about, but I think that she has really already made her mark, and I think that she's shown that she's interested in telling stories from a female perspective, and she shows that brilliantly in My King. So it was directed by Mai Wen. If you haven't heard of her, she's primarily known as an as an actress. She's from France, but she's also been a model like for Chanel. Now she's also a director. She's had a couple of feature films. I think she's working on another one. She's done some short films. So in many ways, she's really at the beginning of her career as a director, and I'm excited to see what work she continues to create. She did have a film called Police, and it won the jury prize at the the 2011 Cannes Film Festival. She's someone who has won awards, and people have really noticed the work that she's doing. In this film, My King, it stars Emmanuel Berko as a woman named Tony. It stars Vincent Cassell as her boyfriend and then husband, Giorgio. And even Louis Garrel is in it. He doesn't have a huge role, but he plays Tony's brother. It's pretty great to have Louis Garrel and Vincent Cassell in one film together. Both very beautiful men. Both, um, I have big crushes on both of them. (laughs) It's interesting because... You know, so many people, especially in America, obviously, you know, they have big crushes on the male actors in America. You know, whoever the heartthrobs are now. I, I don't really know who's considered a heartthrob now because I'm sort of so out of step with mainstream movies and, and celebrity culture. I mean, I like Oscar Isaac and Chris Pine and you know, guys like that. But I'm much more into like the European men, you know, or the men outside of the United States, like Vincent Cassell and Louis Garrel and Mads Mikkelsen. And, you know, like those are like all my crushes that I have and because I'm ridiculous. But uh, so it was very um, enjoyable for me to watch this film and see two men that I absolutely think are gorgeous um, and very sexy. And so uh, this film won a few awards. Emmanuel Berko won Best Actress at the 2015 Cannes Film Festival. She actually tied with Rooney Mara, who was in Todd Haynes's film Carol that year. The film was nominated for the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, though it obviously didn't win. And it was also nominated for multiple Caesar Awards in France. So I think Berko absolutely deserved that Cannes Film Festival Award for Best Actress. And I'll talk more about her performance in this film as I go along. And I do apologize if my pronunciation is not great. I always get really, really nervous having to pronounce European names or French names on the podcast. I practice it, I learn it, and then the moment comes to say it and it comes out terribly. I did take French for many years. I took French in high school, took it in college because of my love of French culture and art and cinema, obviously. Um, I'm, But I'm still not fluent and my pronunciation is not the best, so I do apologize. So it's a real pleasure to talk about this film. I've wanted to talk about it for a while because I feel like nobody has talked about it. it. It hasn't gotten a lot of appreciation here in the United States. I don't think the film got a lot of attention. I, I have seen a lot of negative reviews of the film. I'm not sure what the Rotten Tomatoes score is right now, but just online I've seen some more negative reviews of the film and I just couldn't disagree more. I, I watched the film and I was completely taken over by it and very impressed by it. 
And then I really felt like critics or maybe other people didn't quite connect to it, didn't quite get it. So in many ways, this episode is sort of me making my case and me arguing for this film and standing up for this film and saying this is worthy of being talked about. And I think it has important things to say. And I think it is well made. First of all, let me set the uh, mood for you, like how the film opens and and some of the stuff that happens and give you a sense of this film. I hope that you've seen it if you're listening to this episode. And obviously there's going to be spoilers if you haven't. (laughs) The first big theme for me with this film is the reconstruction of a woman. She's not just healing her body, but her soul. Because the film starts with Tony, Emmanuel Berko, on a skiing vacation. And she's on the slopes and she's sort of dangerously going down them. She's very sort of reckless. And she ends up hurting her knee really badly to the point where she has to go to a rehabilitation facility for it. While she's at that facility, she starts to think back on her relationship with her ex-husband, Giorgio, a man that she has been entangled with for about a decade of her life at that point. It's a man that she has a child with, a son named Simbad. Immediately, I think the film sets up this idea of physical healing and emotional healing. Because Tony going to the rehabilitation facility is a chance for her to get away from work, get away from family and friends, and everybody that, you know, she knows. And it's really a time for her to be alone with her thoughts, alone with herself. And obviously she's away from Giorgio. And at that point, they're divorced and separated anyways. But it's really an opportunity for her to reflect on probably the past decade of her life. And so the film starts in the present of her at the rehab facility. And then it takes us back in time through flashbacks to when she met Giorgio and the development of their relationship. And I think that's a really fascinating thing that Mai Wen did. And she did co-write the script as well as direct the film. Immediately, this woman is the central focus and her life and her thoughts and her emotions. We're, We're getting her perspective of the relationship and what happened between her and Giorgio. I love the way that the film goes back and forth in time, that there is this chaos and the tumultuousness of her relationship with Giorgio. And it's really juxtaposed against like the serenity and the calmness of her time at the rehab facility. Because when she's at the facility, she, you know, they do different exercises and she gets to get in a pool. And so we see her swimming. She's often in repose. She's thinking she's sort of staring off into space, staring into the distance. There's like the ocean nearby and the water. She's really convalescing, I guess you could say. And in that calmness and in that stillness, I think she's able to reckon with and look at the chaotic relationship and toxic relationship with Giorgio. As her knee heals, I think that she starts to heal. And I think that she becomes a different person. And I think she is different by the time the film ends. But we also see through this process of her trying to heal her knee, it's painful. 
at times things happen and she cries and she's in a great deal of physical pain. But just as it's difficult to heal those physical wounds, it's also hard to heal emotional wounds. And I think, if anything, they're probably harder to heal because there's no exercises that you can do. There is not a set of instructions and a roadmap for what to do. Her going to this facility really inspires her to come to terms with her relationship with Giorgio. And it really happens when she's talking to a therapist at the facility because the therapist starts to prod her a bit and to say, well, why did you hurt your knee? Why did you fall? What caused you to fall? Were you in some kind of emotional state? The therapist reads this quote about the knee and it's very interesting. She says, quote, the knee signifies the capacity to let go, give way, or even retreat since it is a joint that allows only backward flexion. Pain in the knee suggests that one has difficulty accepting an event in one's life and healing proceeds along the along the same psychological path, unquote. I mean, I don't know how much truth is in that, but it's an interesting idea. I don't know if I totally buy it. I mean, Tony has legitimately hurt her knee. She's, it's not her emotions creating the pain in her knee. It's not something that she's making up. But I think the discussion with this therapist opens up something in her. It breaks some kind of dam in her because she starts to cry when she's talking to her. And I think it allows her to to start looking back and to start thinking about the emotional turmoil that she's been in for the last few years and to really confront the damage that has been done to her by her relationship with Giorgio. And my win in an interview actually said that it was really important to her to show a woman reconstructing herself and to show the the man who destroyed her. So her time at the rehab facility is a time, I think, of healing and rebuilding and reconstructing and also of reflection. I don't think that we can go forward in life if we're not aware of the past and if we don't take stock of the past and, and come to terms with what has happened to us, to name it to hold it in our hands, I guess you could say, and put it into the light and really see it in all its facets and see the reality and the truth of it. Because Tony in this film is someone who I think lives in a lot of denial for a long, long time with Giorgio. She makes excuses. She rationalizes it. She justifies what is happening. She gets so lost in the love for him, the romance, the addiction, I think, that she has to him, that she's not able to take stock of it. And it's in this facility that she's finally able to do that. And I just think it's a really poetic idea in the film of this woman going away and trying to heal both her mind and her body. And I think the film seems to suggest that emotional wounds are as intense and visceral and important as physical ones. But we can't see those wounds. You know, there's this scene where Tony's in this room at the facility and you can see the scars on people's knees where they had surgery. You can see where the stitches were. But when it comes to our emotions, when it comes to the psychological damage of life, you can't see those scars and they're much harder to identify and to cope with, I think. So immediately I was entranced by the film because of this, the way that it started and the idea of this woman reflecting and looking back I love seeing a woman thinking on screen. And so many scenes 
uh, of Tony in this facility. Show her in repose, as I said, in silence, in stillness, thinking back to the past, remembering, confronting her life and her past. And I just love those scenes of Berko just looking into space because Berko is a brilliant actress in this film in particular. I've not seen her in anything else. And she says so much with her eyes and so much with her face. Her entire life is on her face and in her eyes. And you can just feel every emotion emanating from her very skin. It's astounding to watch her. And for me, Berko's performance is the ha- is like the hallmark of the film. It is everything. I think that's why I love the film so much. Partly, I think if it had been another actress, maybe an actress who is not as emotional, who maybe is colder or can't show those emotions, it would have been different. But for uh, Berko, it's all there on her face. Her acting is just astonishing in this film. And she really portrays this woman who has become undone by a toxic relationship and is trying to find a way to escape and to go on. And she sells the film completely. She is why you keep watching, I think, sometimes. The way that she inhabits this woman, the way that she conveys her elation at times, you know, in those first, the first whirlwind of being with Giorgio. She's just so addicted to him and entranced by him and elated to be with him. And then you feel her desperation as the relationship starts to get harder. You feel her heartbreak and also you feel maybe her liberation. I'm going to talk about the final scene, the ending, and my interpretations of it and how I think my feelings about it have changed. But seeing her in this film made me want to immediately go and watch every film that Berko has ever done. Um, I haven't yet, but I'm going to. She's in Police by my win. She is in that. And I think she's in some other things, but a lot of her films are not available here in the United States. I haven't been able to find many. Berko is a screenwriter and a director in her own right as well. So I'd like to watch some of her work, uh, you know, as a director as well. Hopefully I can do all that. There's never enough time for, for anything. But she is just the cornerstone of the film for me. And her performance absolutely deserved awards and deserved recognition. And the way that she brings Tony to life and shows every dimension of this woman who is incredibly complex, incredibly complicated, and contradictory. Sometimes she seems very sedate and ordinary, and then other times she's very uproarious and out of control. She's just all these different things in the film. She's very emotional as well. I think Tony is a very emotional character and someone who feels things very deeply, and that always resonates with me because I'm a really emotional person myself, (laughs) so I always love women who are emotional. But this is a really great film, um, like a realist, naturalist sort of film that I think the French are really, really good at. They do such a great job of telling stories about real everyday people. Charlotte Rampling talked about this in a documentary that I saw her in. And I talked about, um, I talked about Rampling. I talked about that documentary in my episode on Francois Ozon's Under the Sand. And in this documentary, Charlotte 
Charlotte Rampling talked about French cinema and that something she loved about it was that it was just about people. It was just stories about people's lives. I love films like that. Here in America, especially mainstream cinema or what you're going to find at a regular movie theater, not an art house one, is going to be the superhero films, the blockbuster films about these larger than life characters from from comic books or whatever. Those are just not my kind of films. I don't get into them and I don't connect to them. I much prefer a film like My King or Under the Sand or, you know, all the films that I've talked about on this podcast. Films about everyday real people. And My King is really part of that tradition of just everyday lives. And so I think that's a really beautiful thing. And I I love films like that. And I wish there were more here in the United States or that they would get more funding. And I mean, Netflix has done a good job, I think, of doing some of that. Like one that comes to mind is Tamara Jenkins's Private Life, which came out recently and that I really loved. That is a really great film with Katherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti and just about everyday people trying to have a child. And it felt so real and uh, beautiful in that way. I really loved that film and enjoyed it. So a big theme for me with this film is how it shows the damage of a toxic relationship, of an unhealthy relationship. And I don't think we often see that in cinema. The way romance or love gets portrayed. I don't know, we we kind of have extremes a little bit. Like, I don't know, like we have romantic comedies. We kind of have that tradition when we do see films about love or or couples or whatever. And it shows everything perfect and and things like that. And so I don't know if we really see films about toxic, unhealthy relationships. Or if we see films about really passionate, tumultuous relationships, there's maybe not a critique of that. I think in this film, there is a critique of this kind of relationship and of the toxicity and of the damage and the destruction that is done to the woman in the relationship at the hands of the man. And so in that way, I think it's a film that shows misogyny, that shows patriarchy to some extent, and it shows the way that men can treat women and how um, how damaging it can be. And we see that in Tony because it's a toxic relationship, but Giorgio is the toxic one. And she, for so long, can't or won't see it. And I think a lot of women have been through that. What's brilliant about the film is the way that it takes us through the relationship from the beginning to the, you know, sort of the birth of the relationship right to the death of it. And you're there in the thick of it. You're there in the messiness and the pain and the heartbreak of it with Tony. You sort of live it through her, live it with her, along along with her. It's a, this slow seduction in the film because Giorgio is not a bad guy at the beginning of the film. Um, we're seduced by him the way that Tony is. And we see the way that she just completely loses control with him. And I think we've maybe, maybe we haven't all been in a relationship like this, but I do think a lot of us have maybe met people who changed us, but not in a good way where you would get around them and something would happen to you and you would do things that you wouldn't normally do. And you become this person that you don't recognize when you're in their presence. And there is a toxicity about it. And yet you 
continue to be friends with them or continue to be in a relationship with them. So that's why I think the film is kind of relatable for a lot of people. I don't think you necessarily have to have had a Giorgio in your life, but you can know what it's like to be to not be yourself anymore or to be negatively affected by another person and to not understand why you can't extricate yourself from it, why you can't get out of it. The film is two hours. It's actually longer than two hours, I think. It is long. It is a drawn out film. It is, I mean, I think maybe the last 20 or 30 minutes possibly could have been cut. But at the same time, I would say no, because I think you need all of it. I think you need all of that messiness. I think you need that roller coaster ride that's in the film. It can be an exhausting film, but a toxic relationship is also exhausting. So I think in that way, it's showing you the up and down of the relationship and it's showing you the exhaustion for a reason that it's trying to mimic, I think, the highs and the lows of this kind of relationship in the film. And it's grueling in that way and you need some endure endurance to get through it I think like I felt that grueling thing about it watching it for a second time to talk about it here on the podcast I was like wow this is really going on but I think my win did that for a reason a very specific reason to show how in this relationship Tony is with him and then she's not and then she's back with him and because there are relationships like that where people are together and it's working and it's good and then all of a sudden they can't be together I mean there are people who have been on and off for a decade I mean that is real (laughs) so I think the film is trying to explore that explore these two people who like that saying goes they can't be together they can't be apart be apart you know they can't live with each other they can't live without each other but I think Tony gets to the point where she has to live without Giorgio or she's not gonna be able to live at all like she's not gonna stay alive and be able to function and live and be happy if she is with him she's really fighting for her life I think to get away from him and to liberate herself from him. And even if we might not have had a relationship like that, you may have a friend who has. There might be many women that you know who have been in these kinds of relationships and maybe you're on the outside looking in and you don't understand why does she stay? Why won't she just leave him? But I think the film shows us why they don't leave, why they can't leave, why they won't leave, is because when it's good, it's really good. It's like heaven to them and then but then when it's bad it's soul destroying so tony's in her rehabilitation facility and she starts thinking back to her relationship with Giorgio and she thinks back to the night that she met him at this club at a dancing club and i really love this scene i've watched it a few times and i love the song that's playing in it it's called easy by sun lux And I've had it on repeat ever since watching the film. It's just been on and on and on. I cannot stop listening to this uh, song. Berko in this scene is just absolutely brilliant because she's looking at Giorgio for the first time. Well, not for the first time. They know each other previously from years ago. But she's watching him and everything is in her eyes. It's like... 
I don't know if it's love at first sight, but there's something first sight. She feels something for him instantly when she sees him. And she's checking him out, and she's watching him in the club, and there's these neon lights, and and that song by Sun Lux is playing, and it's incredibly powerful and emotional for me every time I watch the scene, because I'm just absolutely fascinated by these kinds of relationships or by really passionate love stories. This one turns toxic. A lot of them do turn toxic. I watch stuff like this about like passionate sort of brutal relationships. I was recently thinking about um, the Wuthering Heights adaptation with Laurence Olivier and Merle Oberon because it's my favorite version of Wuthering Heights and I, I really would like to do an episode about it eventually. I was actually thinking about it for that reason because I'd like to talk about it and that's the kind of love story that I'm fascinated by or is like this Victorian gothic like painful kind of love. It fascinates me. It's not anything that I've ever experienced, but these really passionate, deep love stories intrigue me. And I'm just fascinated by people who meet and have intense connections with each other and how they end up changing one another's life. And it's like, if these two people had not met, you know, everything would be different in their lives. It completely changes them. And that's something that we're seeing in this, in that scene with Tony and Giorgio is that she is watching him, looking at him. She's attracted to him and that is ultimately going to change her life and ruin her life. And she doesn't even know it. I think already, when you go back and watch the film, you see the difference between the two of them and how those differences are eventually going to destroy them. Because here's Giorgio on the dance floor dancing. He's got these beautiful models, these women. He's a chef or he like owns restaurants or something like that. He's very glamorous. And Vincent Cassell is like that. He has that about him. And then we have Tony, who just looks really regular and normal, and she's not dancing. She's really reserved. She seems a bit shy. Maybe not shy, but she just seems a bit more reserved. She's not shy because she's the one that approaches him. She goes and, like, flicks water on his face, and she's like, do you recognize me? He kind of does or he forgot about her because it had been so many years because she had worked at a bar and he had been there Uh, he had been a regular at the bar and that's how they knew each other from years ago so she is sort of assertive in the way that she approaches him because she is attracted to him and she desires him and you can tell it the moment she looks at him it's all in her eyes and that that scene just I don't know, it just moves me because it's the beginning of something that at first is really intoxicating and beautiful. I love when they're falling in love and I'll talk about it in a minute. I, I just love that. It it sort of reminded me a bit of A Star is Born by Bradley Cooper, the one with Lady Gaga, the most recent one. I love the first half of that film. I absolutely love the love story between Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga in the film when they're just in the first throes of passion and love and falling for each other. It's just absolutely beautiful to watch. And that this film had something like that in it where you're seeing these two people fall in love with each other and you can feel the way that she's intoxicated by him and it's romantic at first and new and fresh. And I absolutely love when they were falling in love with each other. But 
Cassell is just immediately magnetic. Like, he's on the dance floor, he's there, he's in the club. You know why she's looking at him. He has such an irresistible charm and charisma and presence for me. The thing about Vincent Cassell, I just, I have a thing for him. He does something to me. He is so physically present in films. He's very manly. He has this intense masculinity about him. But that can... That's usually um, used in a dark way in films that he's in, like the characters that he plays. Um, You know, you think of something like Black Swan that he was in. That's probably maybe his biggest role in the United States and what people know him from. But Tony's drawn to him and you can tell why. Like, you're drawn to him. You're seduced by him because Vincent Cassell has that kind of power, I think. And their their romance is quick and intense. They have breakfast. They talk all night. They have instant chemistry, instant connection. And it's just full throttle from there. It's a whirlwind, whirlwind romance. She is sucked into his orbit. He's unpredictable. He's exciting. Like instead of giving her his number, he just throws his phone to her. It says, take my phone. Here's the passcode. He takes her to a wedding like the first time they go on a date or the first time they get together or something. They just go to the random wedding of one of his friends. He's barely known her. Very quickly, he tells her he loves her and he wants to have a child with her. Everything just starts to happen very, very quickly before they even really know each other that well. And this is sort of how we're told love should work. I mean, later on in this episode, I'm going to talk about the our ideas about love and how a lot of them I think are wrong or misguided but we're sort of we're taught like oh well you should fall in love that way you know love at first sight is what everybody wants even though love at first sight is kind of ridiculous you don't know the person you don't know anything about them it's more like lust and attraction but we're told that love should be um should be like that that it should be instantaneous that you should feel certain things and but sometimes maybe that's not the best way to go about it especially when you don't know somebody very well. It's kind of crazy that some people only get married after barely knowing each other. And a lot of heartache ends up coming out of it, unfortunately. Just everything happens so fast in this relationship, but you just feel the connection between them. I think my win in the script and in her direction, and obviously the actors just completely sell it to you that these people are in love, that they are connected. I mean... I love when they're in love with each other. I think Cassell actually comes off really tender and vulnerable at times in the beginning of the relationship. And it makes him even more attractive, actually, to see somebody as as muscular and and sexual and magnetic as him and really masculine to see him vulnerable to see him really sweet and kind and funny it's it's amazing to see him that way and you know for instance when they have sex for the first time it's an incredibly vulnerable sex scene I don't know if I've seen something quite this vulnerable before because Tony starts to cry when she's with him and they're in bed together and they're naked and she starts to cry because like her ex-husband had said something about her genitalia that it was too large and too loose I guess 
us. And she's asking him, you know, do you think that she's just so insecure about it? And you can tell that she was probably terrified when she was having sex with him that he was going to think something was wrong with her. And of course, that's a form of misogyny, what her ex-husband did to her. Giorgio is so tender and sensitive in this scene. I mean, he's totally appalled that anyone would say that to her. And he says that that guy was a jerk. And he says that you need to stop meeting so many jerks. And she asks him, she says, well, are you a jerk? And he hesitates and he says, no, I'm the king of jerks. And that's obviously where the title of the film comes from. And it's interesting because in that moment, he's really telling her who he is. And I think it foreshadows a lot of the heartache and the pain that comes later in the film. In that one scene, even though he's being tender and funny and attentive to her and supportive in this really beautiful way, he's not going to stay that way. He's not going to. But it is beautiful to see that. And I'm glad that my win spends so much time showing them in love with each other, showing them laughing and being silly and connecting and showing the way that Tony is really head over heels with him. And how could she not be? We see exactly what she sees. We get why she's attracted to him. She's almost in this frenzy when she's around him. She laughs. She's boisterous. She's just, she's just in a frenzy. She's not herself. She's very different than the Tony we see when she's not around him. She's much more reserved. She's much more, um, not like that really when she's not around Giorgio. He intoxicates her, like literally, like she takes him into her and becomes a different person the way that alcohol would change you or the way that drugs would change you. He is like that for her. And I think she just trusts him completely, even when that darker side of him comes out. But I'm glad that we got to see the love. We got to see the tenderness between the two of them and the connection between the two of them because it's realistic. I think this is what can happen to a lot of people, that he's not a really bad guy from the very beginning. It comes later or it slowly starts to come out. It slowly starts to come to the surface, but you're already so deep into it that you can't get out. And so I think that's what a lot of women can probably relate to, is that, oh, he's a great guy at the beginning, but he doesn't stay that way. But Tony becomes pregnant, the two of them get married, and they're deeply in love with each other. But things start to happen, even before the wedding, even before the baby. There is trouble in the relationship. And the film explores that and weaves those moments into it. It's it's fascinating because there are these moments of joy and happiness and laughter. And then there are these moments of terrible pain, terrible damage, and I think emotional abuse. And I think the film is exploring emotional and psychological abuse. I really do. This is a big theme for this film for me because I do see Giorgio as a manipulative person and a controlling person at times and a psychologically abusive person as well. Making a woman feel crazy and worthless is a form of abuse to me. Being controlling and manipulative is abusive. We see so many depictions of abuse against women as physical and violent. And while that is very important to talk about, we need to talk about domestic violence. We have to always talk about that physical violence and you know, women are being murdered by their husbands, their boyfriends, their intimate partners. I would never 
dismiss that or say it's not important. These subtle forms of abuse, these subtle forms of misogyny that women go through in relationships with men, in interactions with men, are also very important to illuminate and to explore. And I think the film does that really well. A lot of the trouble starts when Agnes comes into the picture. Giorgio has this ex-girlfriend, a model named Agnes, who is mentally unstable. And he is still very much involved with her. That starts to become a problem because Agnes sort of confronts Tony and she's like, you stole my man, you stole Giorgio. There's a tension between Tony and Agnes Giorgio starts to split his time and energy and focus between the two of these women. He's with Tony, but then he wants to check in on Agnes and make sure that she's taken her medication and that she's okay. And he almost pays more attention to her than his own wife and his own, you know, when Tony's his girlfriend and then his wife. He's not focused on her. And it's subtle. And so Tony's puts up with it. Tony doesn't really resist or or make it a big deal, but you can tell that she's she's really bothered by it. And then Agnes uh tries to commit suicide and he starts to put a lot more time into Agnes and and being there for her and taking care of her while here's Tony who's pregnant and he's completely ignoring her. And Tony's like rightfully upset about it and Tony leaves him. She decides that she's going to leave Giorgio. At first he says, oh yeah, I'll, I'll stop seeing Agnes. I won't do it anymore. And then he gets really intense <laughs> and says that he's not going to stop seeing Agnes. That nothing will stop him from taking care of her. So this starts to show another side of Giorgio. Someone who does not value Tony and does not value her feelings or her perspective in the relationship. And he starts to really make her feel crazy and hysterical. And that's something that I think men can do to women, you know, is to make you feel like you're crazy, make you feel like you're too emotional. Something's wrong with your hormones. Are you on your period? It's a subtle form, I think, of misogyny. It's a subtle form of devaluing women. He blames it on her pregnancy and her hormones and acts like she's out of control. You know, he gets the second apartment so that if... He says that if they have a fight, he can just leave. And so now she's basically alone and pregnant because he's got to go to his other apartment to have, I guess, alone time or whatever else he's doing at that apartment. So she's with him, but she's not. And that becomes the central issue of the relationship is that she's with him. She's supposedly his girlfriend or his wife, but then he's moving into another apartment. He's putting all this attention into Agnes and she puts up with it. You know, she is being devalued. She is being um, treated as less than. She is not his priority and she accepts it and it starts to erode her. It starts to erode her sense of self, her sense of worth, because he is slowly chipping away at at her, at her sense of worth and her self-esteem. He is just gradually chipping away at it, making her feel like she's nothing, making her feel like she doesn't matter. At one point, she goes to his second apartment and she's so mad that she puts her fist through glass. You know, she has these eruptions of emotion because she can't handle it because she loves him. She wants to be with him. She's having his child, but then he can't support her and he can't be there for her. He has turned her into a version of herself that she doesn't even recognize. And he did that from the beginning. 
you know, when she's with him, she is a different person. And at first she was this happy person. She was laughing. She was so alive when she was in his presence. And then as he starts to become more and more um, negligent of her and, you know, neglect her and overlook her and ignore her, it starts to turn her into someone who's very mad and depressed and anxious and all of this. And it just completely changes her. He has lied to her. He has this debt that he didn't even tell her about and that she's responsible for too because they're married. And one day these people come and just take her furniture from their from their apartment. She had no idea. She gradually starts to realize she does not know him. She doesn't know him. But she puts up with it like a lot of women do because she wants to have this fairy tale, right? And she wants her child to have both parents in his life. She wants them to be a family. She wants them to be together. She is trying to make it work. She is trying to to get through it even though it is destroying her. She's like holding on to the dream of Giorgio. That that man that she met in the club, that man that she sat up all night with and talked to for hours. She's holding on to this dream of him, this idea of him that she can't let go. And it just starts to just get worse and worse. He gets involved with Agnes again. Then she finds him in bed with another woman. Then he breaks down and says that he's taking drugs. I mean, the film is just, it's so messy and and crazy in that way of like, so much happens. It's crazy. And he says that he'll get therapy and he'll get help and and all of this. And when he admits that he's been doing drugs, she says, we don't know each other. She says that because she starts to realize she really doesn't know him. But she continues to stick by him. She wants him to get therapy. She wants him to move back in. I think she thinks that she can save him. And I think there are a lot of women that think that. They can make this relationship work. They can do this. They can hold it together. You know, maybe having a child will change him. They think they can save these men. I'm listening to this true crime podcast right now, and it's called Cold, and it's about Susan Powell. And she is this woman who most likely was killed by her husband, but her body has never been found. It's a really tragic, heart-wrenching case. It has haunted me for years. I've watched documentaries about it, and now I'm listening to this podcast about it. My mom and I are actually listening to it together because me and my mom watch all things true crime together. It's our obsession. This story has just stayed with us for years, and the podcast goes really deep into the emotional abuse that she suffered at the hands of her husband. I think his name's Josh Powell. And I don't want to give anything away about the case, but you can look into it for yourself. And she went through terrible emotional abuse with him. He he took her paycheck when she would work. He wouldn't work, but she did work. He would take her paycheck. He would not buy groceries for her and their they had um, two children. She had to like hide money from him so that she could buy groceries for her children. And he... He definitely murdered her. I mean, everybody thinks that he did. Investigators, police think that he did, but her body's never been found. He was not physically abusive towards her, but he did a lot of things to break her down, to make life difficult for her. And she kept thinking that she could 
get through it, that she could make the marriage work. She was really religious. She just believed that their marriage had to survive. And so when I was watching My King, I see the same thing with Tony, that it's all right in front of her who Giorgio is and the kind of man he is and how manipulative and controlling he is, but she can't see it. She wants to make the relationship work. She doesn't want to listen to her brother, Louis Garrel. He can see it. He can see the toxicity of the relationship, but she can't. And she starts taking tranquilizers. Um, She starts to get on anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and Prozac. And there's this really powerful scene in the film. They're having this party because Giorgio's going to go into therapy. And his friends are there, all his glamorous, rich friends. And you can tell that she's owned something, that something has altered her. She's raw and she's desperate and she's like yelling things and gesticulating. And she tells everyone that he's going to therapy and that's why they're having the party. And she says, importantly, that he needs therapy because he's sick and he hurts people. And you can just tell in this scene, and this is Berko's power in this film, the way that she conveys the way this woman is exhausted and exasperated and completely spent from this relationship, from the energy that it is taking for her to keep it together, to keep the relationship together and to keep herself together. She's sick of it and she just breaks down in front of all of these people. You know, she's on, she's already on drugs, Prozac and Xanax and tranquilizers. So the relationship with Giorgio is really killing her soul and it's killing her body. These drugs change her personality. She's more spaced out. She's not all there sometimes. There's even this scene where she sees an old friend at at the pharmacy and she has Simbad with her, her son that she had with Giorgio. And she just walks out of the pharmacy and doesn't grab Simbad's um, stroller. Like she has to come back in to get Simbad. Like that's how out of it she is at times. And it eventually reaches this breaking point where she has an overdose where her brother finds her. And that is her breaking point, I think when her own her own body and her own mind cannot keep going in this relationship and she wants a divorce and this scene between her and Giorgio is really crucial and important i do think that a film like this raises the question of what love is i think films about toxic relationships and abusive relationships whether they're emotion whether they're emotional abuse or physical abuse I think that they raise questions about love itself and about our ideas about love. There is this idea that love should be tumultuous and it should be passionate, that there is pain involved in love, that it's all about your emotions and your hormones and things like that. But I think that that view of love can be used to justify really toxic behavior, especially on the part of men. And I love, and I wonder how much this idea of love fuels these kinds of relationships and that women think that they should put up with things when they shouldn't. Someone that I really love, a feminist thinker and writer that I really love is Bell Hooks. And she has a book called All About Love. And it's this really great book where she critiques, especially here in the United States and the Western views of love, how there is so much focus put on physical desire own sex especially and love at first sight and things like that love as an emotion rather than love as an action 
and I think in the book, it's been a little while since I read it, she talks about how love should be a verb, that it, that is where it should begin, is as a verb, as an action, as things that you do for another person, not just the way that you feel, that so many relationships become based on having that flame, having that spark with another person, when maybe that's not something that you can sustain for years on end, that it's not always going to feel like that, that maybe love or relationships should be built on other things, like shared values, shared beliefs, interests, you know, similar interests and passions. I mean, so many times you see people get in relationships where they have nothing in common with each other. And you're like, why are these two people together? Susan Powell and Josh Powell were a lot like that. She was so different from him. It, it just, it makes me wonder as I'm listening to the podcast, like, why were they together? And I think you can see that in a lot of relationships. But I think a film like this makes us think about love itself. That Tony and Giorgio think that they're in love, but is that what they really have with each other? Is that love? When look at the way he treats her. Look at how little he puts into the relationship. Look how dismissive he is of her. That's not love. And I think a lot of men and women in this country especially, but this is a film in France, so I can't speak to the French culture and the French view of love. But especially here in the United States, it's this idea of love is very much based on looks and physicality and sex and attraction rather than actual things that you have in common and how you could support each other and be good to each other and change each other for the better and love that can um, enrich you and make you a better person. And, you know, we just don't have that idea of love here. You know, it's all about attraction. And you see that in a lot of the romantic films and romantic comedies. But that can also that can also be a recipe for disaster. So when they're talking about divorce, Giorgio brings up about how she was the one that came up to him. Because he's upset, he doesn't want a divorce. And she says, the problem is us together. That they can't be together. And he says, basically, that she knew what she was getting into. He's blaming her. Um, and he makes the point that, you know, he says you end up leaving people for the very things that attracted you to them in the first place. And she says that they just, they just destroy each other, her and Giorgio. And he replies, when you love someone, it hurts. It's not easy. But I really think it's that kind of thinking that leads many people to remain in these kinds of relationships that are toxic and destructive. Thinking that love has to hurt, that you have to put up with pain in order to be in a relationship. I don't think that's true. I don't think the film thinks that's true either. I certainly don't think my win thinks that that's true. Giorgio goes on, why must I be what you want me to be? You came over to me precisely because I am what I am. And of course, that's the conflict for Tony, is that she is attracted to him, or she was attracted to him, and maybe she still is. But their life together, and what he does to her, and the way he makes her feel so small and worthless, is unbearable for her, and it is destroying her. And what do you do when you're sort of attracted to your own destruction? That's what happens in these kinds of relationships is that women feel like, oh, I love him, I love him, and they put up with so much. They put up with terrible treatment at the hands of these men, and then they can't get out of it, sometimes because of their own emotions, sometimes because he's abusive and she can't get out. 
And I think what she really can't stand is the roller coaster of the relationship. And she says that in their discussion. She says, you know, every day it's something different. One minute he loves her. The next he's cheating on her. You know, one minute he's, he's with Agnes. The next he's with her. It's maddening and it's really pushing her to her breaking point. And I think she's tired of the pain. It's not love. It's just pain. Sometimes it's just pain. It really is. And when they start talking about divorce and custody, this is when the the dark, dark Giorgio comes out. We thought we had seen the dark Giorgio before, but he gets even worse. He becomes even more controlling and manipulative, and he even veers into violence at times, physical violence, or almost, or threatens it. And, you know, when he starts to talk about custody, he does not want to alternate weekends. He doesn't want to share custody in the way that she wants to, and he threatens her. He says, he could easily get primary custody of him because she took pills when she was pregnant and she's unstable and she's had outbursts and he has witnesses to it. So this is another emotionally abusive, psychologically abusive thing is to threaten to take her child away by acting like to a judge or to a court that she's hysterical, that she's crazy, that she is this mad woman right? And that has been used against women for centuries. This idea that we are hysterical, that we are too emotional and all of that. And it's, it's something that a lot of men use against women. And she's in the car with him and he starts to back it up and he's hitting cars and he grabs her and he starts to get physical with her. So it's, he starts to cross that line from that emotional abuse into the more physical abuse. And she gets out of the car and she's standing in the rain and she just screams. She just screams in the rain. It's this complete shift in him that I don't think that she expected or had ever seen. And it scares her, I think, and it shakes her up. And I think a lot of women have seen that or lived with that, of seeing a man that you love and trust or thought you could trust and them changing very suddenly and becoming a person that you don't even recognize. And that violence comes out again later on after they've divorced. And at this point, they've been together for like 10 years. They've been, they've known each other for 10 years. And obviously they have the son together and he comes to her. I think she's at work and he wants to get back together. She doesn't. And then he starts to ask if she has a boyfriend and he says that he doesn't want Sinbad to meet the boyfriend so his controlling behavior comes out again. And she says, well, too bad he's already met Simbad. I, I do have a man in my life and he's already met our son. And he just about loses it. He walks over to her. He throws stuff off her desk. Um, he becomes very threatening in his presence. The way that he gets in her face and he raises his hand like he's going to strike her. And this is a very important scene because Tony finally tells him what he has done to her and the toll he has taken on her life. She yells, quote, you decide right and wrong. You decide for him. What did you do to me for years? He says, I never laid a hand on you. And she says, you want a medal for not laying a hand on me? What about the psychological abuse? You don't think it hurts more than a punch? It is such a powerful scene. She's crying in it. Another uh, example of Bearcott's just mastery and how powerful she is as an actress. She is in his face just screaming at him, you know, look what you've done to me. 
this is how you've treated me for 10 years now. And yes, she had gone back to him a few times and they had slept together and they had had good times together. That's what's so complicated about it within within these kinds of relationships is that there are good times. There are times when she goes back to him when she is in love with him and she can't let him go. It's that back and forth, that roller coaster. And the film shows you all of it, you know, that this is, it just goes back and forth and back and forth like a tennis ball, right? But I don't think human beings are made for that. And I don't think Tony is made for that. And a lot of women are not. They want love and support and they want to be valued. And that's not what she has with Giorgio. But she finally... I just love that she yells that at him. and Because I think that's what a lot of men think. Well, I never laid a hand on her. I never hit her. But my king makes it so clear that just because you don't hit a woman doesn't mean you are not destroying her. Those invisible wounds, those emotional wounds, like I said before, making a woman feel crazy and hysterical is abusive. You know, making a woman just feel crazy using a woman, making her feel worthless, chipping away at her self-worth, not treating her well, that is a toxic relationship. And we don't call it out. We don't name it for what it is. This is abusive. You know, if you have to walk on eggshells around a man, if you have to be terrified what you say around him, because he might jump at you or he might snap at you or treat you cruelly. But there are a lot of people that put up with that and live in those relationships and they are miserable every day. They're scared every day. Like, well, what am I going to say is going to set him off? They live on eggshells. They live terrified. And you may not have any physical bruises. There may not be physical bruises on her body, but her soul has been destroyed. I mean, something comes to mind actually recently, the allegations that have come out about Ryan Adams and when Mandy Moore spoke out about her relationship with him and how he kept saying that he would help her with her music. And she talked about how controlling he was of her and Everybody, a lot of people noticed that when Mandy Moore married Ryan Adams, first of all, I was shocked they were together. They seemed so different, right? As soon as she married him or was in a relationship with him, she completely stopped working. Like, you didn't see her in films. You didn't see her doing any kind of music or anything like that. I I love Mandy Moore. I grew up on her music. I grew up on her films. My favorite of her is Because I Said So. That is such a good romantic comedy. It has her and Diane Keaton and so many great, and Gabriel Mock, who I have a huge crush on. And I love Because I Said So. Um, I always thought Mandy Moore was just adorable and wonderful. And she talked about the, the ways that he was controlling, the way that he really kept her from having a musical career for quite a few years. And so that's another example. You know, Ryan Adams, did, as far as we know, did not physically hurt Mandy Moore. But she was in a miserable, toxic relationship with him. That is clear. And it did something to her self-esteem and to her self-worth. And we just don't talk enough about the damage that that does to women. 
you know? And that's why I think a film like My King does matter. And I think it's so good is because it shows it. And as I said, I would talk about the final scene. She finally leaves the rehabilitation facility after all this time. I don't know how many weeks she was in or days, but now she's back in her life again with Giorgio. She is no longer looking back on it. Now she's in it. And is she different? Has she changed? I think she has, and she goes to a parent-teacher conference at Sinbad School, and Giorgio arrives late, and he doesn't even look at her. He barely acknowledges or speaks to her, so he's vindictive as usual. And they sit side by side as the teachers tell them about Sinbad and his drawings and blah, blah, blah. And the whole time that the teachers are talking to them, she's looking at Giorgio, Tony's looking at Giorgio. She's looking at his face, his hands, his hair, his mouth. And the first time I watched it in 2016, I interpreted the scene as like she had finally let go of Giorgio. That was the feeling I was left with. That at the end of that parent-teacher conference, when they go their separate ways, you know, when he leaves the room and she's sitting there, I felt like she was finally over him to some extent. Because she just smiles and she thinks he's, she just rolls his, her eyes at him because he won't speak to her and he won't acknowledge her. And I felt like, I felt like she had matured. I felt like she had reached a place where she, he doesn't have that power over her anymore. Where she's not falling to pieces because he doesn't want to talk to her. So to me, it had, it had a liberating aspect to it where I felt like, yeah, I think she's cut the, the, the thread. I don't think that she is obsessed with him anymore or in love with him anymore. But watching it for a second time, I wasn't quite as sure because she is looking at him and she's like, is she smiling? I can't remember quite if she's smiling or not, but it's like, is she still in love with him? Has she really let him go? I'm not quite as sure. Is there love in her eyes when she's like inspecting his face? Um, has she gotten away from him? Has the spell finally broken? There's an ambiguity to the scene. And I just, I wasn't sure and I'm still not sure if it represents a true break with him or if she is still entangled in that web and still under his spell. I wonder. I wonder if he came to her, you know, at some point in the future, if she would go right back into his arms, right back into bed with him. I don't know. I can't be sure about it. But I have to say, I kind of love that ambiguity. I love not knowing for sure. And I think maybe each viewer interprets the scene in their own way and brings their own feelings to it. I like to think that Tony finally is free of him. I like to see the film as one about a woman going from destruction to rebirth. That I think that Tony is rebuilding herself. She is reconstructing herself. She is healing her body and her mind and that she is going to be free of Giorgio. I, I I can see that for Tony. I will be honest. I can see that for her character. And so I have hope for that. And I have hope that other women can get out of those toxic relationships. I think maybe for every woman, there just comes a breaking point or there comes a moment of clarity the way there was for Tony, where once she had that overdose and she realized just how damaging that relationship was and how it was obliterating her and annihilating her and that she was starting to self-destruct, that he was destroying her and then she was destroying herself. 
I think once she realized that, I think she did sort of have an awakening or have a, a clear, um, like a revelation or an epiphany about it. But even then, she did go back to him and then leave him. And so it's complicated. You don't know for sure. But the ending was more ambiguous for me. And my win in an interview, and I'll have all my sources in the show notes, of course, as usual. In an interview, my win talked about the ending. She said, quote, first of all, the way you see the film reveals something about you. If you see that the woman is still attracted to Giorgio, that is the way you think about it. But I also know people who do think she does not love him anymore. I like to give an open ending to the film because people can see it in the way they want, and that reveals something deep about them, unquote. So for me personally, I like to think that she's free of him. I like to think that going through that physical therapy with her knee and taking stock of the relationship and thinking back on the 10 years that she wasted on this man and the pain he put her through and the way he made her feel crazy, the way he made her feel worthless, the way he made her feel like she wasn't even herself or who she thought she was. I like to think that she's done with him and that she does not love him anymore and that she is now strong enough to walk away from it and to get away from him and to find somebody that does truly love her, that loves her, actual real love, because I don't think that what she had with Giorgio was love. I think it was intoxication, addiction. He made her feel very alive and happy for a little while, but then he also, I think, made her feel like nothing. And just made her feel like she was losing her mind. And so out of control and angry and mad. That's not worth staying with. That's not a relationship. That is not love. It just isn't. And it's interesting to note that there are different reactions to this film from men and women. My win said as much like in interviews that men and women react to it in different ways. And I would be interested if like male and female critics maybe reacted to it in different ways as well. My win in an interview said that she had gotten letters from women and they said, this is my story. This is my ex-husband. This is my boyfriend. That was, that was a big revelation to my win, you know, to put this story on the screen and to realize that a lot of women connected to it and that they could see a Giorgio in their own life. And you never know, maybe the film helped them get out of that relationship. Although it's worth noting that Vincent Cassell did not see the film in the way that I saw it or my wind saw it or a lot of women see it. He has been very vocal in interviews that he wanted to make Giorgio human, that he did not want to make Giorgio into some kind of monster. And he said in an interview with Numero, I think that's the way you say it, Numero magazine, he said, quote, for me, this film was much more a love story. I tried to remain normal with respect to my character without imagining someone with a narcissistic personality disorder. Relationships are always a bit violent when there's passion involved. There can be a certain severity, both psychological in, and in the things people say, because they're going through something and something very intense. And then he goes on, I couldn't believe he said this, quote, You shouldn't forget that the whole script is written from the point of view of a woman who's taking tranquilizers and who's beginning to lose control of herself. I always felt that my king showed a rather distorted version of reality, unquote. So for Vincent Cassell, this is a love story. 
and relationships are always a bit violent and the woman is basically crazy and on tranquilizers so he he brought Giorgio to life didn't he um and I guess there are some men that would agree with that assessment of the film that it's just about this hysterical woman uh obviously I feel very differently about it and I definitely disagree with Cassell and and him saying that relationships always have some kind of violence in them again it's perpetuating this idea that love involves pain, that you should put up with pain or violence or forms of abuse if you're in a relationship, that it's just what's to be expected. I wasn't raised with that model of love. I think I was really lucky with my mom and dad. And I think about it a lot. You know, my dad has passed away and he died in 2006. And I talk about him a lot on the podcast and because I just loved him so deeply. And he was a model, I think, of what a man can be. And he was a loving father. He loved me unconditionally. He loved my mother. He took care of us. He was a kind, generous, good man. And their relationship was one of really equality that I saw growing up. He never treated my mom less than. He never treated my mom badly. And he really modeled for me, and both of them did model, what a loving relationship can be. I'll always be grateful for that and thankful for that, that I did not grow up in a toxic relationship, you know, parents who had a toxic relationship or fought all the time or hated each other, anything like that. I only felt loved by my parents and I felt the love that they had for each other. And so it makes me really sad and it breaks my heart that not everybody gets to have that. Not everybody gets to see that and that maybe they do put up with that kind of treatment the way Tony does and they get entangled in these relationships where they're not being treated right. Not because there's anything wrong with them or, you know, but they just happen to fall for someone who doesn't really show their true colors until you're already so deep into it. He wasn't, Giorgio was not a bad guy on the first date. It took a lot of time for those darker aspects of him to come out, for that misogyny to come out, for that emotional and psychological abuse to rear its head. And by the time it did, Tony was just so deep into the relationship, so deeply in love with him, trusted him so much. And I think that's what's terrifying for so many women in relationships or in love is that what if this man that you love changes? What if he shows this other side of himself and it's ugly and it's violent? And what do you do? Like with Susan Powell, I'm sure she never thought her own husband would kill her or murder her. Any of the women that you hear about in these stories, when it comes to that sort of extreme abuse, of, you know, where it goes to that point of murder, they never thought that. A lot of them didn't. A lot of them trusted their husbands, trusted their boyfriends or intimate, intimate partners. So I think that we need to be aware of the red flags and the signs and all of this. And we need to be aware not just of the physical abuse, but the emotional abuse that women can go through. I think that's what my king does so well and what Emmanuel Berko brings to life so amazingly and with such ferocity and power is a woman who is being destroyed by a man in very subtle but devastating ways in the way that it accumulates and in the way that it builds up in the film. And my wind shows it all. She is daring in that way to go into all of that messiness and all of those complexities and all of that just exhausting pain 
that Tony goes through in the film. But I think that even though Tony goes through that destruction and that devastation, I do think that Tony comes out the other side of it. I think she's changed by the end of the film. I think she's able to let go and cut ties. And I think she is a woman in the process of rebuilding her life and rebuilding herself. And I think that she is finding a way to save and to liberate herself. Even though Giorgio has done great damage to her, she is reborn and she is reconstructing herself. And I think that's a really beautiful and hopeful message in the film. So I'm really glad I could talk about the film. I hope I did it justice. I hope you liked this discussion. Hope that you also like the film or that it inspires you to watch the film. It's just superb. I'm, I've been wanting to talk about it and it's been an important film to me for years and it really held up for me. Like I didn't know what to expect watching it several years later, but it held up for me and I think it's just magnificent. So Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.